Uh, Colin Bettles, Chief Executive of Grain Producers Australia. It's a pleasure to be here on the Ag Watchers podcast this week with your famous hosts, Andrew and Matt. Hello, Colin. Good, good to have <laughs> you on. So, second podcast of 2024, Matt. And Colin's second time with us, I think. Second time well. with us. Yep. Second time, but pretty much covering the same topic. <laughs> well, so if, so if anyone's, uh, that's just turned everyone off and everyone's saying, oh, well, I won't bother listening now. So thanks, well, it's Colin. Topical. The biosecurity tax is topical at the moment. Well, well, it has been it has been a long time since, since we did cover that. That was June or July when that first was announced, would it have been? The May budget last year. Yeah, so, so it's, maybe it was June we spoke about it. So there's more information out, well, more time to digest it. And so a good time to chat about it with the launch of the AGS campaign against it. But first and foremost, we've got to start off with complaints, yeah. criticisms and comments. Matt, any? Uh, we got a compliment uh, just oh. this morning Just this morning from Agostino Jeremono uh, from Weekly Times. He just said... Uh, our first few podcasts at the start of the new year have been very, very enjoyable. So there you go. No, no, no criticisms at all. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll have to keep. We'll have to do something wrong then. Hmm. I'm have sure get, we'll be able to manage. We'll get. We'll get a criticism after this one. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to jump into the sixth sense then. Go for it. I'm trying to remember what I said last time, so <laughs> might uh, get might a different be- version. We might, might mix it all, up a bit. Might be all different now. I think, I think the last time we might have asked you about worst sport, you couldn't answer a worst sport, I think, from memory. I think we answered just cricket, but anyway. Yeah, yeah um, well, everyone knows. Everyone knows, Well, cricket's not, not really a sport, is it? Eric, right, come on, Matt. Sensible. <laughs> this is a sensible discussion for sensible all people. Right. All right. We'll start with uh, Murray Watt. Uh, very pragmatic minister and very busy with two very important portfolios, really. Should be two people, uh, at least a junior minister supporting him. But yeah, emergency management and agriculture. Favorite movie? Well, I was watching the episode of Seinfeld last night where they referred to Schindler's List. So uh, I've watched that many times, um, but also like Fargo. So the Coen brothers make some great movies. But I could go on the Godfather trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so many great movies. And I saw Muriel's wedding for the first time the other day. It's also yeah. a Australian. It was actually quite, uh, on many levels, quite morbid, actually. I haven't seen it. It's an Australian classic, like the castle. What about um, biosecurity? Um, extremely important. What about agricultural levies? Uh, extremely important as well. Um, but uh, we should always be asking the question, are we getting optimal value for them? And uh, can we look at uh, other ways of um, spending those levies to put more dollars in growers' pockets? Uh, this can be current or historic, but best politician in Australia the same? Geez, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I would look at the political system through um, the eyes of, of rural and regional um, if you had have asked me before 2006, before I became an agricultural journalist, I might have mentioned a sports minister somewhere. Uh, but uh, I think Brendan Grills for me, uh, who was the leader of the WA Nationals when they got the balance of power in 2008, 
mate. He was he was, but he was a very funny guy, great character, and really went out and fought hard for regional Australia. And when they got the balance of power in two thousand and eight, negotiated the royalties for regions. Oh yeah, Barn- Barnaby in his prime was um, obviously a great um, uh, advocate for regional Australia and agriculture and agriculture minister for a long time. Um, I've seen Tony Burke do some great things, um, agree or disagree, but with the Basin Plan, that was a great legacy of the Hung Parliament. And Tony Windsor as well as an independent um, also, you know, agree or disagree with him. Uh, you know, he he wants r- rural seats to be contestable, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that message, and, and complacency can be the enemy of the political system. So he certainly belled the cat on that issue. I could go on. and You nearly gave you nearly a lot your top five rather than top just five. one. Well, I would, you know, Michael McCormack obviously is the number one and in being, you know, I, 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 transparency having worked for him, obviously he's the best politician that's ever graced any I think or any parliament. I, I believe that Michael McCormack was only good because of the advice he was receiving, though. In terms of the media, yeah, he's profile. <laughs> yeah, <in terms> <laughs> <laughs> that was a beautiful Well, and he's well a great cricketer as well for the parliamentary cricket team. He's captained that team to many victories. But, yeah, I'm probably going to get in trouble for leaving a few good ones out. But uh, uh, on their day, I, I think Julie Gillard was a good leader as well. I think she had great right, right. charisma and she was a fantastic performer in the House of Reps during the Hunt Parliament. So I was gonna I was gonna go throw in the question of who's the worst politician, but I think that's that's too bad. That's too hard a question. Well, I can so say um, but, Rod, but the Rod question... Culleton. Rod Culleton. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. from Parliament twice on the same day. People <laughs> forget this. He's created the uh, equivalent of a quadruple, triple pike somersault to be turfed out of Parliament. And he still hasn't got the message. <laughs> uh, but he claimed to be representing farmers as well, which was very problematic for the rural sector. Which he wasn't. He was our area. We shall not. Yeah. So the, 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 the final question, the final one for me was producer share of retail spend. Uh, well, we need some more information to try and get some better data around that. There's a very good conversation going on at the moment around cost of living and how much the farmers getting in terms of the retail giants. Uh, at the supermarket checkout shelf. But, you know, we say with the price of beer, a $15 pint in Sydney, we would estimate that maybe 20 cents of that goes back to the barley producer. There's a lot of tax collected in in between. So um, there's, uh, you know, people want to see farmers getting a fair share, but it's a pretty big term. How do you quantify it? Are Are they taxes being collected or levies being collected, Colin? Well, both. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tax. There's a discussion going on at the moment about the the tax on beer that goes up automatically. So the price of beer or a schooner, I paid $15.30 for a schooner a couple of days before Christmas. And as you do, post it on social media. I'm sorry I didn't tag you guys in, but it had a huge reaction. Um, and a lot of people saying, well, that's that's huge for a schooner. Uh, Bolter XBA at the Oaks Hotel. Yep. Uh, and I, the question I put on there was, you know, how much, the price of the beer, how much does the barley producer get? But people saying things like, well, that's why I'm drinking at home now, or there was commentary from across the nation about where people were drinking, what price they were paying. Well, there was a serious discussion about the cost or people saying, I don't go to pubs anymore, I buy it and bring it home or I brew my own. What so, about... Um, let's, let's, let's talk about bias. Well, I'm going to come back, oh, to, okay, so, to, come back to beer price, but we'll talk about security first. Why don't we why don't we quantify actually because it is a bit of a discussion on this levy or, or tax 
What is the difference? What your understanding of a levy versus a tax? What are the differences? Is it a levy or a tax? And in layman, in layman's terms, for Martin, yeah. we're, we're both simple people. Well, quite simply, a levy is hypothecated for specific purposes, and you work in partnership with groups that have oversight of that, including input into discussion on how it should be spent. Um, the Productivity Commission put out a report before Christmas, which essentially said that we're talking about the proposed biosecurity levy tax that supported industry's view that it's a tax, it's going into consolidated revenue, uh, and it may or may not be um, redistributed to the Ag Department to pay for what's essentially border protection services. So um, this is a very poor policy. It's It's got a number of fundamental flaws. That's why we're asking for it to be uh, well, reversed, basically. Um, but, you know, there, there are levies already in place for biosecurity where you work in partnership with trusted groups on emergency response deeds, and there are also levies that are placed at zero, which if we get an incursion that the farmers will pay for. While they've been hit with lost productivity, they'll also be hit with um, future costs to pay for those emergency eradication management services into the future. That comes off their bottom line. But all we were asking for and have been asking for for a long time is for the risk creators to make a better contribution to shared responsibility and accountability. Um, we talked about a container levy. This was announced in 2018. It hasn't been delivered. So it's kind of like uh, our words are being used against us and still there's no container levy uh, and or any sign of it, any sign that they're even responding to it. Isn't the, the, the existing proposal for this biosecurity levy or tax, as you call it, there are aren't like aren't the farmers share of what's like it's not a huge amount that's coming out of the farmer's pocket is it? isn't it coming from tourism as well like in terms of numbers of traffic coming into the country well farmers being described as beneficiaries of biosecurity i just described that situation of the what the farmer gets for a, a schooner of beer in sydney 20 cents that uh that helps create a product all the way through from the transporter, uh, all the way through to that retail customer, um, there's a huge number of beneficiaries in that supply chain, right, including tax collection for the nation. So agriculture, you know, the more you tax agriculture, uh, the more you're going to limit it, our ability to reinvest to create that wealth for the nation and that economic activity. So that that's a key argument. What about, so, so Colin, like, go back, go back a second, like, if... Like the container levy that was talked about, that was the previous government, I believe. Yep. And uh, it, like this, the idea is that you you tax containers. Each container coming in pays X amount, uh, and then that sort of those are the people that are bringing effectively the biosecurity risk comes from things coming into the country, whether that's tourists, which I think is a limited issue generally, but containers are probably a bigger risk. But doesn't that just get passed on? Like, say, the producer, the farmer, Jimmy the farmer is buying shuttles of glyphosate that are coming on a container. If it's a container levy, they're just going to get charged that anyway. The grower's still going to pay it. Well, that's right. Um, you know, producers are price takers as well, so all the costs will be passed back down the line. So we just think it's bad policy. Um, it was announced um, despite the fact there was a consultation process about a sustainable funding model. Um, our understanding was that there would be no um, levies added on in that cost model. That there is no actual um, economic analysis to go with this. 
So that's why 50 producer groups have written to the Prime Minister and the Treasurer to ask them to provide that criteria. Why are producers the only beneficiaries? There's there's a lot of unknowns in there. That's why there's so much opposition. Um, and, you know, to just say that producers are the only beneficiaries we think is disingenuous. So from... From an industry perspective, what would be a preferred model? Like, because we've got to, we obviously we have to do, you know, we have to t- take biosecurity seriously. We have to make sure it's adequately funded. It's good. The money's got to come from somewhere. So why not a levy or a tax? Well, we already pay taxes. So the agriculture department got a one-off um, uh, funding allocation of one hundred and twenty-seven million dollars in last year's budget as well. So there's also a concern that that money is going to the agriculture department at the moment. They're being financially mismanaged as well. So that the policy is just flawed. There was a sustainable funding consultation process. There was a Senate inquiry into biosecurity. There's a modernising ag levies legislation. Uh, there is um, so there's a Senate inquiry on that now. That 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 bill needs to be presented or is being presented to the Senate. So. All of these, there's a, also a Senate inquiry on fire ants. Biosecurity has been heavily politicised. So we're asking the risk creators to contribute more, putting another tax on producers while there is no container levy or any sign of the government's response to it. And that was a recommendation out of the Senate inquiry in 2022 that was done shortly after government. So now we got multiple inquiries uh, and political processes around biosecurity, which is politicising it, and farmers are pretty upset about it. And I think the purpose of what we're trying to do has been lost amongst all of that. And we'll get back to the original statement, there are already levies that have been hypothecated and are hypothecated, including the RDNE levy, which um, sees uh, projects, outcomes that are developed in partnership with producer groups and government agencies to deliver on a number of outcomes for biosecurity. GRDC, for example, puts, uh, you know, um, I think I don't know the number off the top of my head, about $40 million a year in the last five years into biosecurity projects as well. So if like, if, I, if I'm looking at the list of that 50, 50 producer groups that signed that that document or the letter to to Murray Watt to reconsider the, uh, the biosecurity levy stroke tax, if if I look at those lists, grains would be the biggest in terms of funding that levy, yeah. And then, yes, there's, well, there's, it's based on collections, which obviously varies. Varies, but but generally, you're going to consider it's going to be grains, then cattle. I'm guessing, and then it sort of will quickly sort of diminish. That would go. It would be, it would be good to have some um, economic modelling on all of this. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sure the government's got that. You know, uh, but from from Treasury, but if it's so, then so then you're talking about that at the moment that that funding. If so, when does the duty start getting collected this year? Uh, it's due to come in on July one, so it needs new legislation to enable it, right? So, so, so that money could go into just Department of Agriculture. Well, and it's not, going into consolidated revenue. It's yeah, going but, to Treasury. It may or may not get to the department. But it's, it's going to be filtered and then a little bit taken out of each each step. But it might not be targeted towards grains, even though grains is funding it. And uh, That's do, exactly right. And do grains get a... And at the moment, you're saying that there's potential that grains don't get any say on how that's spent. Well, another thing here is that not all agricultural commodities or producers have levies set up as well. So it's 
it's going to unfairly punish those who are already doing the right thing and the free riders will continue to get a free ride. So what you've articulated there is, um, you know, we've been developing a grains biosecurity plan in partnership with Plant Health Australia and uh, with um, other grains groups and, and um, GRDC. And so that's going to remain unfunded. There's no guarantee, but we're asking, okay, there's some pragmatic reality to our approach. We, we're opposing this new tax, but we're realistic that if the government is going to take the money off producers and set up this new legislation, and if it passes the Senate, because that's another question altogether, then we want to see it fund the grains biosecurity plan um, at, at a minimum, but yeah. also demonstrate that they're actually, um, you know, the investment of this, this funding that's coming directly off growers' bottoms, bottom lines is going to help prevent things like capra beetle getting in. So we won't collect any levies if we get capra beetle. So in terms of what's, just remind me, what is the overall cost to agriculture? What is the expected route? Just as a $50 million a year, roughly over three years was the was yeah, the projection. Right. So they, they've, the advice that's been provided to um, the government now, as we understand it, um, and it's uh, subject to a decision of cabinet. So they will respond, we assume, in the near future. It's going to be a very big ask to try and get this legislation passed uh, by July 1, but they've also got to set up um, the, the collection methods. There are, there's, I think there's um, 1,500 different collection points for levies across the sector. That's that's not including the ones where they don't have collection points at the moment. Yeah, that's, 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 my, that's my next question. And I'm not saying this happens, but I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Mm. If you sell your grain to any of the big players, CBH, Glencore, Emerald, whoever it may be, it's all automatic systems in place to collect levies, yeah? Uh, but, that, yeah, they're well used to that. They're, they're compulsory government levies, so they're but, also endpoint royalties. But not all grain sold necessarily captures a levy um, in the domestic market. That's the that's one of the assumptions, yeah. It's not 100% guarantee that all of those levies or endpoint royalties will be collected. Yeah, so there is a sometimes a missing... Yeah, I think that would be the case for all commodities, but like you're trying to optimise that collection... Yeah. But with grains, for example, CBH is the main, um, you know, bulk handler in Western Australia. A lot of the grain goes to export market. Um, you know, there's almost 100% capture over there. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, so it does, it does definitely sort of, it's grain growers are the ones that are predominantly paying the majority of the money. And probably, if you talk about significant shares, Western Australia, is going to be the biggest contributor to that as well, is percentage-wise, or forty-five percent at least of that on an on an annual basis. But then, then I guess because I say like there's going to be shared like biosecurity, yeah, it's a shared thing. Whether it's spent on livestock or cattle, a livestock or grains, some of the same projects will be applicable to both, like putting stronger, more detection dogs at the border is going to be beneficial to livestock, but it's also going to be beneficial to grains. But it's grains that's going to predominantly pay for, for that, in effect. Well, if we continue to have these big harvests, then yes, the, yeah. you could be collecting uh, an extra $30 million a year through this biosecurity tax. 
as well. So we would want to see clear evidence that it's actually going to deliver stronger protections for the grains industry. Like I said, levies are hypothecated. They're also um, established by industry to deal with what's effectively a market failure. Mm -hmm. um, the RD&E system has been in place for 30-odd years. Um, that's seen increased yields in paddocks, uh, you know, the amount of work that's done there, water use efficiency, nitrogen use efficiency, um, and increased yield, you know, better varieties, shorter season varieties, um, enhancing the use of no-till methods. Uh, so all of that improves the sustainability of what growers are doing on farm, um, healthier soils. Then if you're getting increased yields, then you've got more grain to sell and to transport and export, and that means you're increasing the nation's wealth. That means you're increasing tax generation as well. And that includes the cost of inputs that farmers have no control over. So they're paying more in inputs. That means there's a lot more tax uh, that they're paying as well. So to put another tax on them for biosecurity, I think at this moment uh, in time as well, is highly offensive. And if you're going through a consultation process to come up with a sustainable funding model for biosecurity and you do not sit down with a group like Grain Producer Australia and say, uh, you know, we are looking at putting another levy on you. Uh, what do you think? Um, then I just don't think that's a flawed consultation process. And that's one of the main reasons why these 50 producer groups from across the spectrum are upset. It has unintended consequences for the levy system because, for example, uh, wool producers are saying they've got their wool poll, which is a set vote by producers on how much they pay in levies. That's happening shortly after July 1. Mm. It will be... Um, a retaliation there where those producers can say, oh, well, government's just taking another tax office, calling it a levy. Um, let's reduce our wool levy by 25%. That means you're not, you don't have that investment in our DNA, which increases the yields, which and they do marketing. So in grains, you don't have a marketing levy. Although we've got Grains Australia um, helping to enhance market access and the value of grain and consolidate industry good functions, but you're limiting your ability to add value to uh, that, that commodity, which increases the nation's tax revenue. So we think this is a fundamentally flawed policy approach. They've got it extremely wrong. And they at least could have put that on the table in the consultation process on a sustainable funding model. Instead, they just announced it. And that's when we did the podcast after the budget yep. came to the shop. And every producer group that's submitted now to the consultation process on this uh, has said that they don't like it. But again, um, you know, groups like GPA, it's our role to review levies. So this interferes with those processes that are going on at all those other commodity groups that work with their RDCs in good faith. Um, and some of them may retaliate by lowering their RDNE levies. But we've had multiple processes of biosecurity Senate inquiry um, that recommended a container levy. That hasn't been settled. Uh, we've seen no evidence of a response from government on that, there was no economic modelling put out so that we could actually um, have, you know, a real good roadmap of what this levy may look like or tax. Um, and there's multiple processes. The modernising ag levies legislation process has been going on, going on for six years. There's now a Senate inquiry into red fire ants. I think people have just about had enough. And the government, there's an opportunity here for Murray Watt and his government very clearly to respond to this and say, you know what, um, we've heard the views of producers. We're listening. Um, this is picking a fight that we don't need to pick with the farm sector, especially while they're talking about cost of living uh, and the, the share of the retail dollar that the farmer gets. 
that this comes directly off the bottom line. They already pay enough in levies. Uh, let's just can it. So if you, if you, so I'm, that's I'm, what just, I'm, sorry, I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about levies. Yeah, like Australia is probably it. It has a lot. What's the comparison of the levy paid by Australian producers versus other countries? Like I know that a lot of people around the world I spoke to, they sort of they think the fact that we have endpoint royalties, we have uh, levies, is actually a pretty good thing. A lot of countries don't have that system. But have have you looked at the comparison of how other countries, other comparable countries around the world, how they fund their biosecurity, whether that just comes from the general taxpayer or whether that comes from agriculture? Well, it's a big question. I, I don't know. Some I presume some countries already have the diseases we're trying to keep out. So True. maybe, yeah. maybe you know, maybe by their nature of having a land border and difficulty in, you know, pol policing that, that they just you know, accept that they're going to get stuff coming through. The, the bottom line is you establish a levy, um, industry initiates a levy. There already are levies for biosecurity. There are levies for RDNA, which puts significant amount into, into biosecurity. So putting another one on producers that we didn't ask for completely contradicts the spirit of the existing levies. What 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 what, 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 what if the solution? What what if the government came out? I'm just I'm devil's advocate here, yeah. If the government came out and said we're scrapping this basket levy, yep, and we're not going to replace it with anything, what would the response from industry be then? We're just going to keep biosecurity as the status quo. I don't think that'll happen. That they will say that we're not going to do anything now. But they announced a sustainable funding model, but it was—it's not a sustaining sustainable funding model at all. So they—they've kind of contradicted themselves. So by just putting another tax on producers doesn't mean that the system's sustainable. I and mean, how long's a piece of string? You're also paying for emergency management of if we get pests and incursions. That's a whole different story. And but equally, do contribute to that. The people who bring it in don't. the The risk creators do not have, uh, do not make a contribution, or anyone else who is a beneficiary of strong biosecurity do not make a direct contribution of their bottom lines to emergency management responses. And I think the people who put together this announcement uh, have got a fundamentally flawed approach. They need to um, throw the whole thing out and start again. And that would be with a. Um, a consultation process that actually reveals that they're planning to bring in a new tax on producers. Equally, just following from Andrew's point, though, would you say, like, if they did, did scrap it in its entirety and didn't replace it, and we just went back to the existing structure? Status quo. Yeah, is that a, that's not a great outcome either, though, is it? You know, and and that's what I wanted to ask. Because it sounds like Colin, from what you said, is that your preferred method now is that they just can it and that's it. But is it or, is it more or can it and put an import levy or something like that? But but is it is it the how of, of of the implementation or is it the fact that you just think it's not required at all? With the the an, another levy, yeah, yeah, we're yeah, saying yeah. we don't we don't want another levy. I mean, this is going into consolidated revenue for the government, um, and it's to pay for um, services that taxpayers should be delivering through the department. So it, it's fundamentally flawed. So this part of it should be dropped. If they want to actually deliver the container levy, well, that's good. Hmm. So, but what's what's the what's the ultimate flaw? What's actually going on? The government is cutting costs on everything. 
and biosecurity is a part of that as well. So saying that producers are the only beneficiaries and putting more costs on them is the wrong way to go about it when we have existing levies in place. So, um, you know, government needs to prioritise its investments across a range of areas. Um, uh, infrastructure's been slashed around the country as well, state and federal budgets. We're in a cost of living crisis. So it, it's a very difficult time for the nation's budget. So, um, you know, how they solve that challenge is why we elect the government to put another tax on producers isn't the way forward. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right, well, we've made that point. Do you want to move on? You mentioned at the outset too regarding Minister Watt and specifically you spoke because it was quite a lengthy answer to the um, Sixth Sense, but you yeah. talked about the, the dual role that, that that's currently in place where you've got a minister in charge of emergency response, but then also in charge of agriculture, and you're saying in your view that that's too much of a job for one per, one person to do those two portfolios. Well, Murray's done a fantastic job um, uh, managing the two to this stage, but I think it's only natural that you would think he would at least need the support of a junior minister on emergency management and uh, agriculture. It does seem it does seem to me that like both of them are big enough sort of remits to have their own minister, especially this time of year. Because how often is there a disaster? I can't remember a year where there hasn't been some sort of emergency in Australia during November to March since I arrived here. Well, he's not only managing the new ones that have suddenly happened as and well. The existing There's ones. been some other legacy issues that need your attention as well. But he, he's very pragmatic. So when I say he's done a good job, I think his level of understanding uh, on these agricultural matters, which can be quite complex, um, has been good. But, uh, you know... He's got it wrong on the biosecurity tax, but certainly give credit where credit's due. I, I think he's um, shown a lot of initiative and pragmatism. What about, going back to, I want to talk about beer in a minute because that's you know obviously a topic of expertise for the three of us. Um, I, I don't often talk about beer at uh, early on a Monday morning, by the way. Well, look, I think you need to you need to spread your awareness and you spread your <laughs> spread your consumption throughout the day. Um, Monday, Monday mornings are strictly Scotch discussions. Scotch, Scotch and wine. <laughs> um, so going going back to yeah, uh, going back to Murray Watt. One of the things we spoke about last time, I believe, was the we spoke a bit about retail spend. Obviously, the as grains, like there's such a there's so many links in the supply chain or the value chain between the producer and the actual end consumer in coals buying the tip-top bread or whatnot. Uh, but we did have a chat about the, what do we call it again? The amount of, I guess, the value that farmers are receiving back from the grain trade, because we did have a period of sort of extremely low basis levels between Australian wheat barley and canola versus the rest of the world uh, and there was uh, i know you guys at gpa were looking to get some form of uh productivity commission or ACCC investigation of the grain sort of supply chain how did what did that go what was the result of that did murray watt agree to that or uh we we put out a, a statement just for christmas we didn't make too much noise about it but given that it has been a a centrepiece of our advocacy leading up to the 2022 election and also 
Um, since then, we've been having conversations, ongoing conversations with the minister. Um, they've decided that um, we were asked to provide the evidence um, and we haven't met the threshold required to trigger a ACCC pricing inquiry to convince the the, the treasurer to, to enable that to happen, which I understand the Labor would be on advice from the Ag Minister. Um, so we've accepted the umpire's decision there to a degree. Of course, we, you know, we had two record harvests and there was a, a range of influences there um, with, you know, COVID impacting the supply chain, the global supply and demand scenario, uh, Ukraine war. So we we put the case forward um, and minister said that they, they'll still be keeping an eye on it. So the door's not shut, which is good. And again, that's a pragmatic approach. Uh, and he certainly um, took the time to listen to our concerns and others, uh, grain traders as well. It's a complicated issue, and it's been a perennial issue that's been around since deregulation. Now they're reviewing the wheat pork code. Uh, yep. um, I think there's still an appetite amongst um, GPA members for some oversight and regulation to remain in place. But again, that's only for wheat. And our essential argument was that after, you know, um, 14 years of deregulation. There was an opportunity to conduct a proactive inquiry as well to find out uh, whether we can optimise competition and or supply chain um, and we're going to get these bigger harvests. There's going to be a lot more um, fluctuations as well. Um, so they haven't done that, um, but they are now reviewing the wheat port code and that's due to sunset in October. So they'll obviously go through the processes there of engaging with stakeholders to see whether it's still needed or whether it needs to be revamped and possibly include all grains. But there's a lot of exemptions to it. Um, and I think the HLC recommended with it recommended that it should sunset. Yeah, that's interesting. Because it was, it is one of those things that if we're looking, I know we're out of all the press releases over the last couple of weeks, I've seen about cost of living and farmer share it's heavily been skewed towards uh, horticulture, uh, fruit and veg, because that is a clear cause by either direct or through the marketplace. And there's two, three, three players within that supply chain between the producer and me picking up some capsicum. But with grains, it is one of those ones where, like we know, the profitability of grain traders was absolutely through the roof on a per ton basis during that drought. Not drought, sorry during those those years of surplus. So I don't really understand how we can be, like we seem to be really offended when Coles and Woolies make a big bump of profit off of fresh food, but grain traders make a fortune also in those particular years. So it's a sort of a dichotomy of like, we have one view on one thing and one view on the other. But Murray's what made his decision and maybe maybe forget Murray on the podcast if he's mm -hmm. listening. We've we've sent an invite out to him recently. Uh, him and a few other of his fellow politicians. So uh, he's probably listening to this podcast as we speak. Uh, yeah, if you look at the the difference between the discussions, um, I think um, in in Murray's credit, um, we were having this discussion with David Littleproud as well about the HLC pricing inquiry for the grain sector. They're saying that they want the HLC to go in and look under the bonnet. Yeah. Um, and use the powers of a pricing inquiry to compel information, for example. So we put our best foot forward. We we did a report in that, that um, uh, first harvest when 
21-22, yep. when the coalition was still in office and, and the minister had asked us to provide the evidence or evidence of the need. And our view was that the ACCC had an agriculture unit and that to provide that missing information to tell us exactly what's going on, to get it, look under the bonnet, that they need they, to do that. We, we, these, we were these, being treated like the ACCC saying, you need to provide the evidence. So with more time-sensitive commodities like fruit and vegetables, I understand there's a lot more pressure there um, and a lot more need for them to get to market you know, in a reliable way. So they can be played a lot harder in the supply chain um, and grains has a little bit more time. But Murray's got now, he's got um, uh, Craig Emerson looking at the um, Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. And the question there will be whether it becomes compulsory or or, um, or voluntary. And there's some nuances around those terms, but they do have some action underway. He's not supporting an HLC inquiry. So he yeah. has held his ground. Um, and, um, you know, um, Dr. Emerson is um, a, a renowned economist. And um, so he'll go through that process. But the, it's always been a question of whether or not it should be compulsory. Mm. What level the, of regulation the, do, you, do you put in place? Does the ACCC, like the fact that just you get an ACCC inquiry doesn't necessarily mean that you're can solving the issue because I'm thinking back to the red meat ACCC inquiry of 2015 that had a swagger recommendations about bringing transparency, particularly into the beef space, and nothing's really come out of it. But there was a you know, fairly you know, decent only, number of recommendations. It's, it's only recommendations. Yeah, I know, but that's but then that's the point. Just getting the inquiry is one thing, but then it's what do you do about it after? You, you've seen the result of the inquiry. Do you just well, go, yeah. yeah, that's interesting and shelve it or or do you actually then do something about it? Well, that's exactly right. Um, the HLC will make recommendations, but then the government responds to those recommendations. Then they make a choice whether or not to implement the policy changes. So it still comes back to a decision of government. With the Wheat Court Code review, there was an inquiry in 2008. There were recommendations made. Uh, they weren't responded to um, and after two years. Um, when Murray came into the job, um, he had a choice of whether or not to implement those recommendations. I think it was a dozen from the last week port code review and said, oh, too much time has passed since the last review. So now we'll just review it again. Meanwhile, it's going to sunset. So, you know, what level of faith do you have in government, you know, or is there, you know, actually a pressing need to implement those reforms urgently? I think government's shown they can act when they need to. Um, but there's a lot of inquiries out there, including Senate inquiries. If we go back to the biosecurity issue, you know, there was the crate review into biosecurity. There's all sorts of things that have, that have, um, and strategic processes are underway. So I think government's, um, you know, confused itself actually about what it wants to do. So a, a biosecurity tax looks like a desperate attempt. If you take that to competition as well, um, the HLC um, Ag Unit was set up in 2015 to look at competition issues um, and to have a better understanding of agricultural supply chains and have the expertise inside the HLC. So you would think now, almost a decade on, that they are ready to go and humming to come up with the solutions that are going to solve, solve some of these problems around supermarket pricing and transparency. And, I mean, don't even get me started on $1 a litre milk. Hmm. It's It's... We're sort of coming up to an hour. I think we should probably end it on a discussion of beer <laughs> I, because I've got some insights. I One of the, my biggest takeaways from being in the UK over Christmas 
was how expensive things have got. I know, I know Australia is experiencing a cost of living. I wouldn't, since I got back, I don't think there's a cost of living crisis in Australia, not in comparison to there is in the UK. Like I went to my local pub and I got a pint of Leffe, so a nice Belgian beer. And I, you know, I took out a couple of coins from my pocket you know, to to pay my normal two pounds fifty, and then she's like, "Oh, that'll be six. <laughs> that'll be six pounds fifty. When were you last there? Not long ago, exactly two years. So, in for in two years, the price of beer has gone from around about two to three pounds per pint. When I left in two thousand ten, it was like one dollar eight, one pound eighty. So it's gone from one pound eighty to two dollars two pounds fifty in ten years and in two years it's gone from two pounds fifty to six pounds fifty it's not because you used to drink carling or fosters and now you're drinking leffy no i've always i've always been Penance extra i've <laughs> always had a sophisticated palate when it comes to beer um but but i think like it was it was remarkable how expensive everything has got like fish and chips four pounds fifty to seven pounds you know and I wonder if, like, Australia, like, you said that the pint, was it Schooner of Balter? Balter XPA, XPA. $15.30. I like an XPA. 50 mm. pounds? Well, that's interesting, because I got a Schooner of Balter yesterday in the Civic Pub, and it was £10. So maybe, Colin, it's just the places you're going. Well, there was well, there was one comment on social media that said that $15.30 was to pay for um, ambience and man bun maintenance in the True. lower north shore of sydney so and again you've got a choice okay you you know if the household budget's under pressure you've got a choice about what you spend on you know um going out to dinner and and going to a pub you have to cut those things back according to what your mortgage is and, and yeah we've got tax cuts coming up later in the year as well uh stage three so you know but the question is what's the quality like you know here i think the the prices seem to be high but not sure it's linked to the same level of quality that you get in other places. Well, I think like I, I don't know. I just I I don't I never drink beer at home. I never drink beer at home. I just don't like beer at home. I feel that beer for the last five years has been too expensive at home because you buy a case of beer. What's a case of beer now? Like twenty four, well, sixty or seventy dollars, wouldn't it? I'd say I don't know. If you, yeah, you're talking. But I mean, you can. But that's, it, yeah. but that's that's sixty dollars are probably for like a Great Northern. No offense, but that's not my tipple. <laughs> but like, if you were going to say Little Creatures Pale Ale, which is a run of the mill, you're probably talking eighty, ninety. Ninety. I would have said ninety bucks. Yeah, something like that. But that well, used to. I, I only keep Kilkenny in the fridge, and I think my last one was about eighty dollars, which I'm happy to pay. But I feel that wine is. I drink wine at home if I'm having anything, and I feel that that is a much better value for money proposition. Because you can get a nice bottle of wine for $25, $30, but a case of beer is $90, $100. Well, maybe we've just kept the prices down for so long. You know, mm. maybe there's just a, what would you call it, a structural readjustment where we actually need to be paying more prices and just want to make sure that the farmer gets a fairer share of that. But I guess this is, this is the, the sort of the crux of it, yeah, is if we've got farmers who... Let's be honest, the last couple of years, farmers have done, on average, if you look at all the statistics, farmers have done pretty well from 2020 to, to now. 
And then you've got a cost of living pressure across everything from fuel to electronics to, to rent to interest rates. How do we get the consumer to pay more at a time when they're struggling? Well, the question is how do you get more of that back to, to the producer? I mean, we're also being told that there's more pressure coming on farmers from consumers to produce sustainable products as well. So I think there'd be a lot of lot more comfort um, if the, the people who are confident that it's a sustainable product know that the producer who's implementing those practice changes on farm are also getting a much fairer share of that as well. Well, isn't you, it? When you, when, you, when you come to fairness of share, then isn't it about, added, look, if we had extra transparency through the supply chain and people could, because I don't think anyone, you know, if you look at things and you say, well, that's, you know, this person's getting X amount or this industry or this segment of the supply chain is getting X amount. If it's, if it's fair compensation for what they're actually doing, anyone, an average person could look at that and go, oh, that's reasonable, right? So then is it about is it about that? Is it the fact that it's such, you know, some of these supply chains are shrouded in, you know, a bit of mystery or, or opaqueness that, that people just don't know how much X is getting in terms of the supply chain. So there's an assumption, oh, we're getting ripped off by Coles and Woolies or we're getting ripped off by, you know, whoever it is in, in with whichever part of the supply chain. If you could see... To a degree where it was going, even in broad terms, you could say, okay, well, that's that's reasonable. And then people wouldn't stress out so much. Well, that's right. We're, we're sort of, there's a lot of guesswork and consumers still want cheap food. And most of them, quite frankly, that's their main priority, the household budget, not, you know, how much the farmer's getting for being sustainable. So I wonder. There's a huge disconnect between the economic reality, consumer choices, and the political rhetoric. Maybe that's maybe that's what the uh, inquiry into uh, supermarket food prices should have a recommendation of. Is it costs a dollar a kilo for onions? The far then next to the sign should be, and the farmer gets five cents a kilo at the supermarket shelves. But then again, it's hard to track and hard to calculate. Who knows? Well, we could talk for another hour, I'm sure, at least about these issues. Yeah, but anyway, I think the main the main thing is that we've just got to find a way to get beer cheaper. You know, so I think we've uh, we we have to increase yields of barley, and increase barley barley malting barley quality, so that we can continue to enjoy a freshing ale on a Monday morning. <laughs> That's exactly right. Right, oh, Colin. Well, I think it was, it was good to chat as always. I think uh, probably wrap it up there. Um, I think we put up I put up a poll on Friday or Thursday last week anyway about the biosecurity levy whether people supported it, and it seems overwhelmingly people didn't support it. So it's that sort of obviously most of the guys that follow guys and girls that follow us on Twitter are most likely in agriculture, so that uh, supports your. Uh, your view that the industry is against the biosecurity tax? Thanks for running that. Yep. Well, that's right. We did a poll shortly after the budget as well, which was overwhelming in its response. But uh, the government has an opportunity now to demonstrate that they've been listening. What's the point of having a consultation process where you've got such an overwhelming response and then just simply ignore it and press ahead with what you were going to do anyway? Well, the day after the day after we recorded with Trevor Whittington from WA Farmers, we recorded around that Cultural Heritage Act, and the day after 
our podcast, they changed the subscribe the legislation. So, so maybe tomorrow you'll wake tomorrow, up to the news. Tomorrow, Murray, Murray might be listening to this later today when we put it out publicly and then we'll get a change forthwith. Okay. So just keep 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 your eyes here. All right. Right up. Thank you. Thanks. See you, see you when you got nothing on, Colin. Bye-bye. Thank you.